Hello and welcome to the podcast Surviving the Institution. I am your host, Elif Leutens, and in today's show, we will be talking with Amir Masumian, PhD student at SOAS University. Today, we will discuss concerns around diversity in Western academia, and also we will get very interesting insights on ideas of masculinity in relationship with the far right. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you enjoy it. Amir, it is so lovely to have you here today. You are currently doing a PhD at Soros University about ecofascists in London, and your work examined the intersection between far-right nationalism, environmentalism, and the ideas of masculinity. So you navigate around how ideas of masculinity informs perception of race, gender, nationhood, and immigration among men in London who identify themselves with the far right. So this is such an interesting and important research topic. Do you mind to tell us a bit more about yourself and about your PhD? Sure. The, uh, the actual research itself started off much more kind of white. It was during my master's where it was around the Brexit vote that I saw during my master's. And obviously every single person in the UK was like one of the main things on their mind, right? Like what is happening? How are things changing so much? All these kinds of things were shifting. And at the same time, you had um, Trump in America as well. Um, you had Viktor Orban in Hungary, Le Pen in France, and all of these various kind of right-wing populists around the world um, were coming to prominence. And so the question on my mind was kind of how can anthropology um, study this? How can how can we gain a grasp of better understanding of this anthropologically? Um, and so during the masters, I started off in pubs around London um, in areas where um, people voted for Brexit, and from there I managed to kind of go deeper into various groups, one of which is the eco-fascist statue um, that you mentioned in the introduction. And one of the topics that kept coming up was this idea that the UK or the West in general, quote-unquote, is starting to become feminized and that masculinity is lacking both in terms of leadership, in politics, in terms of culture, all of these various mm -hmm. aspects of quote-unquote British or Western life were now under threat by the enemy within, which is politicians, global elites, metropolitans, sorry, cosmopolitans, and um, the threat from outside, which is immigration, which is people um, coming in and changing things, basically. And the thing that kept coming up was this idea that it is because the West has become feminized that this barrier is starting to wave. This is really interesting. Can I ask you maybe some questions about diversity and academia? 
So you grew up in London mm. um, and it's one of the most ethnic diverse cities in the world. Mm. And after that, you went to study anthropology, um, um, which is like a mainly white staff department mm -hmm. as well in UCL as at Soros University. Yeah. So how did you deal with this? Could you tell us maybe more about your personal experience regarding diversity in Western academia? Was it like for you a shock to be there or, or not at all? Yeah, I guess, I guess the, um, the shock was not, not necessarily even that there was, um, there wasn't, there wasn't much diversity. It was just getting into the fact that a lot of the anthropologists that I had met mm -hmm. were kind of a lot of the discussions that were happening, a lot of the things that were, um, that were going on. I was very curious as to why, you know, why is it that, that, um, that you're curious about this? What, what is, what is it that, makes you fascinated by whatever it is that you're studying. And one of the things that I'd noted is that people who were not white often <laughs> studied quote unquote themselves. Right. So if you're like, um, mm -hmm. if you're someone who's Armenian, um, Armenian diaspora, the chances are that you're going to be studying either Armenians in wherever you come from or Armenians in Armenia. Yes, exactly. That, that, that kind of, um, that in that sense, anthropology becomes this kind of practice where you're kind of trying to get closer to quote unquote yourself. You know, you're trying to, you're trying to find certain aspects of your own culture or to, um, yeah, a variety of reasons, I guess. But often I found that people who are diasporic would, would kind of try and go back to that that routing essentially or that, that perception of routing mm -hmm. that was really interesting to me because um why it is that people do things was you know, quite, quite interesting you know you have people who thought you know i'm just going to study people in uganda for example i'm going to study people in um indonesia right mm -hmm. what was really fascinating for me was that isn't it interesting that um, anthropologists just study what they're curious about, but there's not that, there's not enough, in my opinion, there's not enough study as to why they do it. What is it that drives the curiosity? And I think it, within Western academia or in social studies in general, there's always been this historical take of going to other places and writing things down. Mm -hmm. Essentially, um, write something um and report back essentially, you know, this, which is which is really interesting right so you you have a nation that you, you see people go outside of it go into these various countries and note down how it is that those other people are living and often uh having uh kind of archives that even the the, the people themselves who are being studied may not necessarily have you know and just kind of coming back and then kind of, uh, and one, one of the things that um, is often uh, quite interesting is in the realm of music, for example, a lot of 
music in the world is not based on notation. It's based on a sonic tradition where it's kind of passed down. Your master teaches you, it teaches the student through playing and it's mm-hmm. through this kind of um, sonic history that these, these sonics kind of move on. And the study of that is to kind of go there and then kind of figure out what notes are being played. And when you map that onto writing and text, then it's kind of like, wow, you're, you're, you're taking, you're taking this kind of, um, this people, this culture, and you're putting it in text form to be studied and analyzed for whatever purposes. And, um, whereas, uh, yeah, and that, that was, that was the question that always, that always came to me was, okay, so as someone who is diasporic, who are you writing for? Do you see what I'm saying? Because a lot of people write because they're curious. A lot of people write because, or do research because there's this kind of, um, there's a curiosity as to why it is that, um, you know, where does the information go and how is the information used? How is the information utilized? And for me, that was something that was, not as not as interrogated as as I would want it to be. Essentially, that was that was the main thing that was quite interesting to me. You know, why are you studying what you're what you're studying? I think that there's always this kind of um, artistic freedom that's been given to anthropologists that you don't really question it. You know, you don't really <laughs> you don't really poke around to see. You know, what is the impetus? What's what's the drive here? And a lot of the times that one has to be aware of how it is that that information is being used, you know, mm-hmm. that's the, that's the aspect that I found quite, quite puzzling is the why, why does, what is the drive, um, that, 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 that has, that has this. And I feel like the, everyone talks about this, but the, uh, what I would be really curious about is an anthropology of anthropologists. So if someone just, studied anthropology for like three years like their daily routine their daily habits how it is that they write stuff and i feel like that would be really interesting so yeah that in i didn't answer i I guess i didn't answer the the um uh the racial uh disparity in in it too well but um i guess for me it's it's not just the racial aspect but also the uh the structures within which that curiosity is inhabited and how it is that that information is then used that's 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 interesting yeah it's more holistic view on it i guess um but then like was that one of the specific reasons why you choose to study at Seoul's university um i guess yeah um uh, UCL Anthropology is an amazing department. Because you did your bachelor there, if I'm not mistaken. But I got my master's there. Um, mm-hmm. and the, uh, my supervisor was Ashraf Hook, amazing, amazing anthropologist. And um, he, and then again, talking about diversity at, at, at UCL Anthropology, it was, it was a real blessing to have someone um, you know, we didn't we didn't share the same uh, uh, background in an ethnic sense, but he was he was someone who um, understood 
being diasporic, living in London. And that already meant that I had felt that um, anthropology was more for me. It, it, it made it possible, essentially. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, I can, I can definitely see myself. And he was teaching anthropology of Islam, which was, was one of the courses that I took. And I was like, okay, so this is something that isn't just for, um, uh, for a particular sect of society. <laughs> this, is, this is something I can do. And um, the, 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 um, the reason for SOAS was because of the fact that I felt like it was a much more critical space in a sense that um, the kind of conversations that I could have um, were completely different to the ones that anywhere else. And that's true. I, I, I genuinely believe that. I think that so as you're kind of, it's a, it's a bit of a melting pot, right? Anytime, Absolutely. Anytime you're in the JCR, you, you're not just surrounded by your own cohort or around other anthropologists. You're, const you're constantly rubbing shoulders with people from all over the world, all different experiences and different disciplines. And that means that you're never ever fossilized in your own perspective and your perceptions of things. So when you tell them, oh, I'm researching this, they bring, they ask the questions that um, you're not going to hear anywhere else. You know, and I think that was the main decision as to why I chose so as, and it's, I, I, the, theoretically it worked, uh, practically it worked out as well, because um, that, that happened, you know, I met loads of people who, um, came in with these incredibly diverse perspectives. Um, what's so beautiful at SOAS is personally, I find that there is place for knowledge production that is open to epistemic diversity rather than the classic universities, where yeah. there is like an endless production of theories that are based on European concepts. Mm -hmm. Um, so that I kind of feel very. Oh, like very, it's, it's a place of home. So was university for me, I guess. That's wonderful. But do you actually think that you could do a PhD in, in a more traditional university? Mm, that's a good question. Um, yeah, yeah, I think so. But mainly because I guess it's, um, I think with, with whichever institution one's in, there are certain rules, certain procedures, certain cultural norms that are specific to that institution, which one adapts to inevitably. And in order to be able to do what one wants to do, one has to um, learn how it is that that particular place works. So, so for example, if I wasn't uh, was in another more traditional university that had the more traditional understanding of anthropology. Mm -hmm. There's always a limit to, there's different limitations on what I can and can't do. The same with any other university. It's just that, that those boundaries are different. Um, and it's just the matter of being able to navigate that space in a particular way. Um, spoken about boundaries, mm -hmm. anthropology is actually seen as a free liberal space, so free to think how the society is and works. But I'm like wondering, like, do you think there is actually place for alternative opinions in anthropology, or 
does the constraint of the post-colonial setting perpetuate in a way? I guess it depends on the type of action um, and the type of research that's involved. I feel like, um, you know, if someone's, regardless of what, uh, what background someone has, both of those individuals can quote Foucault, right? Like the, the, it, the, there's no, um, the only time that that difference is shown is when people bring in, as you said, these different epistemic perspectives into play. And I feel like um, there has to be some kind of interaction with the person themselves. I and mean, that's, that's the whole point of um, bringing forth um, people's subjectivities into the arena. That's, that's again, why question of kind of why do you study a particular people is or a particular thing in terms of materiality is is so important because I feel that you're bringing yourself into that space as well so if you were to write about for example um, a mosque in Sudan for example and I was going to write about a mosque in Sudan We'd, it would be it would be ridiculous to assume that we'd come up with the same kind of perspective and the same kind of answer. But if mm -hmm. and go back to the institution and all the theoretical frameworks that we utilize are the same, then that narrows the reach of interpretation that both of us can come to. And actually, it makes them more similar the perspectives that that we have based on the, the based on the canon of interpretation that's given to us. And I feel like um, the um, the way to kind of counteract that, or or, or a way to see uh, an, an alternative to that, is to do practices or to, to to write in ways or to think in ways that <laughs> that are not that are not what they are at the moment. Yeah, and uh, that's all up to the ethnographer and the anthropologist themselves. You can't kind of have a focus group and talk about it. It's just the way in which you relate to the participants, the way you do the ethnography, and the way that you interpret it has to have your own kind of uh, uh, your own flavor, essentially. And I mm -hmm. and and then when you come back into the field. I would like to see that person's that person really embedded within the work that they are doing, and that's how I know that they're not just kind of taking um, chunks of reality and relaying them onto particular literature. You know, I have mm -hmm. that the, 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 there is there is a there's something that there's a type of ethnography that Elif can do that. Yeah based on your own perspective and your own um, your own relationship with the world. And the more you bring that to the table, the more interesting ethnography and the more interesting interpretation and the more interesting conversations you're going to bring. And that for me is the decolonial space. It's essentially breaking away from a rigid typeset of understanding of how one interprets something. Um, but th this again, this this doesn't mean that one doesn't study 
anthropological texts. I feel like the reason you study anthropological texts is to ensure they don't fall into those traps. You know, <laughs> we are all susceptible to certain uh, uh, certain traps, essentially, to solidify and do violence upon the people that we are studying. And to study past violence is often a way to ensure that that is negated. So spoken about certain traps and decolonial spaces. Mm. Anthropology is actually so intertwined with colonial knowledge production. Yeah. Um, like what I was wondering is, can you, in your own research, can you see ethnography still as a critical methodology when you're studying white nationalists? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think um, it's, uh, so as I said, as I said before, there's a certain, there's a certain violence in text where you're studying a people and you're writing and you're transcribing the interviews, you're writing your experiences down. And that creates a kind of snapshot of a particular perspective. It creates a snapshot of a particular realm. So if, for a pub, for example, the pub's an ever-changing place. It's never static. It's a constantly moving, uh, moving space. And when I write about the particular pub, I can kind of fossilize it as these are what these people think, and that's it. Case closed. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, just, and just kind of um, in often the same way that in the past, You'd, you'd say, like, um, this group of people think in this particular way, and that's it, they're, they're closed off from the rest of reality, which is not true. And I feel like that um, that understanding that things are constantly in flux, the understanding that um, uh, to, to bring the human element into a lot of these interactions and to highlight that human aspect and relate it to my own experiences and kind of intertwine that into the writing, I feel like gives a much more, um, it, it gives, it distorts a linear picture, but also is, yeah, also attempts to kind of uh, explain a certain viewpoint or a, a certain way of being that, um, that I guess, in in the in the decolonial space, for example, one of the one of the things that's always that's always important is um, to highlight the power mm -hmm. differentials in a particular relationship. So, if you're going to a particular place, what are the power dynamics that are at play here? Um, and it's the same wherever you go. There are certain dynamics there that you need to be hyper aware of, and you need to flesh those particular um, avenues out. And that, mm -hmm. regardless of whether you're studying white nationalists or um, if you're studying other groups, it's 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 a it's a similar thing where you you have to be hyper aware of the fact of, of what is the interaction that I'm having here and how the, the how does this relate to further structures, which is incredibly difficult because we'd like to see things in particular ways. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Interesting comments, interesting comments. But uh, please correct me if I'm wrong about your PhD research. Um, one of the responsibilities of the nationalists is 
actually to protect the purity of whiteness. Yeah. And how, how, how do the far-right nationalists strive towards purity and restoring a sense of masculinity in your research? One thing to, I think to remember is that although a lot of the ideas surrounding nationalism are, there's a stasis or there's something static about it throughout time. So if you look at like 1940s nationalism and compare it to today, a lot of the ideas cross over, but because the context is so incredibly different, um, the way in which these things manifest themselves is uh, there's there's a there's a there's a twist um, and nuance that that, that existed, and I think that um, in terms of masculinity, one of the things, or as in, one of the ideas that a lot of them have, as I said, as I said, is that things are things are changing towards a more feminine perspective. You know, feminism's destroying the West and. Uh, mm -hmm men aren't really men anymore and once you have that and that paranoia is in and of itself part of masculinity in which there's always this this line that one is constantly comparing oneself to and falling short of that results in both violence towards oneself and violence towards others and this is a cycle that's very evident within a lot of these groups and there's once one has this particular perspective, even something like using the internet too much <laughs> or um, <laughs> eating certain foods suddenly become related to those, to a lack of uh, discipline, a lack of masculinity, a lack of um, uh, ancestral. Like vegan foods. Like vegan food. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And the, the 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 illusion of purity that exists within that um a lot of the ways in which those then blend into other mental health problems and um the, it's it's kind of a a fraternity in a lot of senses because people can share their vulnerabilities people can express themselves and say you know um i messed up today i uh, i ate meat for example but because of the fact that the group dynamic is based on this shared understanding of what it is to be an englishman or, or, or a fascist a lot of those um uh, a lot of those cycles are often quite toxic and those toxic cycles perpetuate themselves in line with that vulnerability which is a very it's an interesting dynamic, but it's also incredibly dangerous because it can draw in people who have real issues. And instead of dealing with those issues, it, it emphasizes them and actually uh, shoehorns them into political projects that are so incredibly violent. Yeah. Um, but then, like you were saying also, there's like an overlap between like maybe the fascists in the 19th century yeah. and now, and I was like, so basically, um, there was an assumption that concerns about climate change, animal welfare, yeah. and so many also post-material values are like left-wing ideas, <laughs> but 
of course, like if you said, like loads of far right has actually adopted adopted those values mm. in order to fit in this ecologically friendly models. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And do you think this is like returning back towards a more organic living, something new with nationalists? Um, I wouldn't say it's anything new. I'd say that the the forms in which we're doing it are pretty new. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the blood and soil ideology of fascism is, is very much evident. Um, there's uh, the idea of people being from the land and that there is a spiritual connection between individuals and the land with, with, from which they come from. And yes. This intertwines itself with a very uh, pernicious idea then that if you're not white, you're kind of unnaturally in a particular place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That there's, there's certain quote-unquote laws of nature that are being uh, that are being crossed, and that's one of the things that nationalism do, it, it does very well is that it naturalizes language. Everyone knows, for example, that if you touch fire, your hand's going to get burnt. Everyone knows yes. this, but then. It's a, it's a very clever rhetorical technique where you take this particular metaphor that is acknowledged universally and then latch it onto things that are social. So to say that, you know, um, uh, the reason in which immigration is a disaster in a Western country, for example, has been shown in this particular region or this particular area, and that's us getting our hands burnt. Now we can carry on with immigration and go into fire more and more, or we can learn this lesson and actually just uh, expel the fire. And this is a very naturalizing kind of language in the same way that you have um, motherland, for example, the gender dynamic between land and the children of the land. All of these things aren't real. They're they're just very poetic ways of phrasing um, particular social aspects. But because of the rhetorical force of a lot of eco-fascist thinking, they are embodied as something that if you disagree with, then you are yourself an unnatural being and that you're working against nature. And of course, nature is the greatest force. Yeah. Um, But then you also get very close to those white men who called themselves traditionalists. Yeah. Um, so as a person of color, was it then hard to gain access in your fields, if I can say it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a, there's an advantage and a disadvantage. Um, there's a film. I can't remember the name of I'm so sorry. Um, it's a, um, it's a movie about this, uh, this undercover police officer who mm-hmm. goes undercover into these uh, white nationalist groups and uh, but they're football hooligans as well and um this man is pakistani the person who goes undercover mm-hmm. and he does a, a fantastic scene in uh, the, the police uh, changing rooms where his 
colleagues are being very racist towards him, saying that he only got a promotion to this position because he's uh, he's brown. Of his race. Yeah. And uh, kind of, uh, there's some conflict and hostility there. And then the boss comes in and then the, uh, the racist police officers leave and he's left there with the, with the boss in the changing rooms. And then he's just so frustrated with everything. He's like, why did you give me this assignment? <laughs> the boss goes, There's, there would never be in a hundred, they would never in a hundred years think that the police would send in a Pakistani man to go undercover because they think we're all racist. And there's kind of an irony there. Absolutely. But there's, um, uh, there's that kind of play of like, if, if someone was there to just, um, to go undercover or to kind of, uh, to dox them or something like that, it would be very unlikely that they send someone like me. Um, <laughs> so it wasn't at all, um, a no, danger for them. It's, um, a lot of the, a lot of the, uh, my interactions are very much trial and error. So even though my writing is very linear in the way that I met people, a, the vast majority of people that I spoke to didn't choose to speak with me. It's just so happens that these are the individuals that did, which also affects the, um, the ethnographic encounter. Yeah. And I can also imagine that with, for example, within anthropology, that there is always kind of a danger to justify someone's behavior and neutralize it. Mm. Um, and like in your case, are you, were you never scared? Like, oh, I can make the far right seem less dangerous. Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh. Absolutely. And this is, this is a constant conflict between anti-fascist groups and anthropologists and sociologists because, <laughs> um, there is a, it, 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 there's, there's, there's two sides of the coin, right? On one hand, there's a danger of almost too much empathy and too much kind of um, nuance and neutrality and being like, well, you know, we have to see both sides. And that often you then become, um, you then become, you, you may become a puppet essentially for very nefarious means. And you, and that is often the danger with neutrality is that you're essentially saying that I, in a way I support just no one. And by that you're supporting power. Um, then there's the other side, which is that these people aren't even human, that we should reduce them to the worst of the worst. And mm -hmm. to, it's hard to find the balance. And it's incredibly hard to find the balance. And, um, there are even within the ethnography itself, there's certain times where I feel more closely aligned to one or the other. Um, but as an anthropologist, the issue, the quote unquote issue is that you're, you, you have an ethical obligation here. You have, um, I can never write in my writings that this person lives in this place because anyone reading that you know, it, it produces risk for that person and the person speaking to me, there's a trust there, the fact that they've been open to an interview, the fact that, you know, they've invited me here and there, the fact that we've, we've spoken and hung out, there's a trust that's created there. Um, Absolutely. Which, um, 
on the side of the anti-fascists, you know, the anti-fascist activist goes in and they have a hidden camera or a hidden microphone and they try and basically get all the stuff from them and then expose that and then ruin that particular platform, which I completely support. I, I, I don't think there's any issue with that. It's just that I don't think there's a, there's one way or another. I feel like the utilization of, uh, of both these methods is, is the right way to um, kind of produce some kind of antagonism towards these movements. Yeah. And like, I was wondering, like after your research project, mm-hmm. was it hard then to, were it still possible to see them and go to the pub and catch up? Or they become like fans of you? Um, it, it was an odd one because the, I haven't seen anyone since um, the lockdown. So the lockdown really <laughs> changed things. You know, it really, uh, it really altered um, relations. And I would say no, I, I haven't, I haven't seen anyone. But the, but the interesting thing there would be to um, if someone is, uh, I don't know, if someone wants to do this kind of research to kind of find out what post-lockdown um, pubs are like. I think that would be interesting. Interesting research. Absolutely. So I want to thank you for this interesting conversation. It was really an honor to have you as a guest today. My so pleasure. thank you for, for this, Anil. No worries. <laughs>